Hello and welcome to another episode of Hunger for Wholeness. My name is Jillian Langford and I'm the producer of this podcast. Today we welcome our special guest, David Sloan Wilson. Now David Sloan Wilson you'll hear about a little bit more in a second, but he is an evolutionary biologist and just a wicked smart scientist. And in this episode, our hosts Gabby and Ilya sit down with David and talk about everything from the puzzle of altruism and evolution. We talk about pro-social behavior and what that might look like in everything from anthills to human beings. And we talk about religion as the optimization of life and evolution and how technology has enhanced the speed of evolution, propelling us into an unknown future that we need to learn to live in. This episode is definitely more scientifically focused than some of our other guests, but we'll leave you thinking about the universe a little bit differently, about how we've evolved, where we've come from, and I think most importantly, where we are going. It's an incredibly rich conversation filled with great insights from Dr. Wilson, as well as Gabby and Ilya. So I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy part one of this two-part episode with our hosts, Ilya Delio, Gabby Sloan, and evolutionary biologist, Dr. David Sloan Wilson. Well, good morning, David and Gabby. Thank you for gathering this morning. We're living in a very momentous period of history, world history. It's an epochal moment. And David, you have done tremendous work, certainly as a scientist, and then bringing science and sociality together. And so our podcast is called A Hunger for Wholeness. And your work is devoted more and more towards pro-social unity. And maybe we can begin by just asking, how do you see wholeness in terms of social unity, or what might that mean in your paradigm? Right. Well, thank you, Ilya. And hello, Gabby. Uh, Our listeners should know that we, Ilya, have interacted quite a lot lately in past podcasts and also a commentary that you wrote on Teilhard de Chardin to a Target article that I wrote. So I'm very happy to be speaking with you now as the latest installment of this. And I'd like to begin with the puzzle of altruism, basically, from an evolutionary perspective, because what I bring to this conversation is my expertise in Darwin's theory of evolution. And in religion, we talk about the problem of evil. How is it that if God is benign, there can be so much evil in the world? But in evolution, it's the problem of goodness. How is it possible for a behavior benefiting others, helping others survive and reproduce, how can that evolve in a Darwinian world? And there is an answer to that question that has to do with selection at the level of whole groups. And my career has been devoted first to defending that position and then to applying it to topics such as religion or altruism in the real world. But once altruism can evolve, and in general, groups can evolve. Now you have your wholeness. That's what I'm driving towards here, is social groups being selected as whole units and the individuals in those groups being part of something larger than themselves and thinking of it that way. And I believe that is the spiritual impulse, basically. That is the hunger for Hmm. wholeness. 
is individuals functioning in the context of a, a social group. Yeah, really very interesting. Gabby, do you have anything you'd like to uh, pitch in here? So we kind of function like an insect colony in a way. We can't be whole without the others, just kind of following each other, you know? That's right. And uh, we are more like ants in a colony than uh, we've thought in the age of individualism. A point to make is that if you go back like 100 years, Ilya, you're a great scholar, so you know this. The idea of society as an organism was commonplace. Actually, it was the most common idea. And it wasn't until the middle of the 20th century, really, that individualism uh, eclipsed that view. The idea that the individual is some kind of fundamental, all things social must be reduced to the actions of individuals. So in some ways, we're reinventing an idea with an ancient history. And of course, in all religious and spiritual traditions, I just returned from Plum Village, which is the monastery founded by Thich Nhat Hanh, yeah. And uh, they explicitly think of their community as an organism. Thich Han said, a Plum Village is not an organization, it's an organism. Uh, now, at the same time, there's versions of this that are not worth wanting. And if by a social insect colony, we mean a kind of a mindlessness at the individual level, then that is a form of sociality which we really don't want. And it is a possibility. So um, in addition to the hunger for wholeness that's worth wanting, I'd like to say, there's other forms of wholeness that are not worth wanting for the human case. We don't want to be like skin cells that are being sloughed off. I mean, we want to have a say in the groups that we participate in. And Tehard, as you know, Ilya, he understood that, basically. He, he was searching for a brain of brains in which, and he called the individual uh, dignity uh, the pearl beyond price. And so somehow we have to have something which is both social and individual. So that, that's um, a very important point to make. Yeah, so this is interesting, David. I want to bring some things together here. You began by speaking about the evolution of the good, in a sense, in a world where Evolution itself has so much violence and cataclysmic destruction, and it's it's really fascinating that you know uh, species over time will select out those traits that will optimize life. So I find that very interesting: the optimization of life amidst the forces that counter life. And then, second, I think this question of, of the insect colony or the whole or the organism really goes back to the ancient idea of the one and the many. So you're right in saying that the individual is a modern phenomenon, really. It just, the, the individual as the autonomous liberal subject really just arose after the high Middle Ages and certainly with the rise of modern science and modern philosophy. So this is a recent phenomenon, and I think it's the most artificial phenomenon of the autonomous liberal subject. We are, in a sense, we're relational beings. You know, we, we are, I think, in our deepest root and going back to evolution, I think what makes evolution and I'm just speaking to, you know, the expert here, but, you know, what makes evolution possible is deep relationality. In other words, the way systems work, you know, in terms of that organized and self-organizing life. So, you know, I guess I want to tease out a little bit more this question of good over evil. You mentioned in the beginning religion has always been this triumph over evil. I'd like to see religion as the, in a Teilhardian framework, as the energizer of the good. There's something going on, I think, within this process of evolution 
So we can we can say, yeah, it's natural selection or adaptation or selecting out those traits that will optimize life. But I guess from a philosophical perspective, what is it, you know, what is it that allows even biological life to support and sustain and maybe move toward more optimal goodness of life? Uh, uh, Gabby, would you like to add to this before I continue? I watched a really interesting video on this a while ago, actually. So the selection of altruism is inherently selfless because the gene to save yourself or the gene of altruism, and they ended up expanding the colony and spreading their genes further when they chose the gene of altruism rather than the gene of cowardliness. And families that had selected the gene of cowardliness actually died out much faster than families with the gene of altruism. So not only are you protecting the whole, but in a way you're protecting you're part of the whole. So that individual choice of love is also a whole choice of love, I think. Uh, okay, you're wise beyond your years. So, uh, yes, so, she is. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> so let's That's see. why she's my co-host. <laughs> there we go. So how do we proceed here? I think there's two lessons that need to be learned. Is that One is that evolution doesn't make everything nice. There is a nature red and tooth and claw element to evolution. And so often, uh, nature is portrayed as our mother, as somehow in intrinsically harmonious, at least when not disturbed. It's very sobering to think that actually, no, <laughs> it's more like what the Buddha said with his first noble truth. Life is full of suffering. And that suffering is inflicted by either people or organisms on each other, by their cravings. And so when you have species that are separately evolving to maximize their fitness, then that results in conflict of many sorts. And so life is indeed nasty, brutish, and short much of the time. And many animal societies are like this. We need look no further than our closest relative, the chimpanzee, where naked aggression is, is over a hundred times more common than in a small-scale human society. And so chimps cooperate this much, and then the rest of it is this kind of striving, often at the level of coalitions rather than individuals. And so, yes, they cooperate in coalitions. That's the good news. The bad news is those coalitions are warring against each other. And the main context for community-wide cooperation is competition with other communities. And so, and so there you have it. There's the first noble truth. And, and against that background, the good news is, is that what we call goodness can evolve by a Darwinian process, but it requires special conditions. And that's, I think, what's so important, that we need to know what those special conditions. Often those special conditions only operate at a small scale, and so it's so a within-group kind of morality, and then what takes place between groups is the same old, same old infliction of, uh, of suffering. The idea of global cooperation, uh, Ilya, I, I like your confirmation on this, beyond the human imagination before, I would say, the 19th century. I have been told that the Baha'i faith is the first faith that was truly inclusive in terms of aspiring to include all people. So even Buddhism, even the major yeah. Axial Age religions did not envision global cooperation because how could they? How could they That's right. at that time? Mm -hmm. Right. I fully agree. I think Axial religions are based on personhood. In other words, 
the individual in pursuit of divinity. And therefore, like the monk or the prophet is the archetype of axial religion. But I think the Baha'i faith is more representative of what, what I might call second axial religion. In other words, it's that shift to a consciousness of belonging to a whole. And I think, you know, that role of consciousness here is really quite interesting. I don't know. I'm very interested in the place of awareness or perception in this overall evolving process of life. But the high faith, yeah, very interesting in terms of that type of religion that can move us to a global type of community. But I think that globalization of humanity, it does, is going to require, that is in a sense, the next step of evolution. We're not there. You know, we're still axial, first axial people, I think, in many ways. And part of our tribalization and our factions right now are, I think we're living between axial periods. I think consciousness is shifting and we're living precisely in the shifts of consciousness. Yeah. Uh, Gabby, would you like to? Do you think that the us versus them mentality is kind of an attempt to push us into a hole? because? We're like with countries or groups, we're kind of trying to get together. But the only way we can think to do that is competition with the other groups. So a fragmented set of holes, kind of. That's a very powerful motivation. And so you're right that that's often the case. We build a sense of us by opposing it with, with a sense of them. But thankfully, it's not, it's not necessary. It's not the only way. And there's good research on this. So basically studying the relationship between different groups. And if you ask that question in biology, you find that there's a whole range of ecological relationships among species. Yes, there's competition, there's predation, there's parasitism, but there's also mutualism, commensalism, coexisting without interacting at all. And what we find for human groups is uh, exactly the same range of activities. And so groups living side by side with each other have strong identities, but they trade with each other or they have they don't necessarily cause harm to each other and it all depends on the context it all depends on the ecological context uh, Polly Wisner is an anthropologist who studies New Guinean tribes and here's something really scary i mean imagine imagine two cultures that have been living peacefully for a long 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 time and then the ecology changes so one of those cultures has power over the other which they didn't have before there was a balance of power before now there's an imbalance of power. What's going to happen? And what happens all the time is cultural evolution happens, and the powerful culture now revolves a, a predatory relationship with the subordinate culture. And the fact that they've been coexisting with each other for a long, long, long time, it doesn't count for much. And why should it? And why should it? Unless you have a, in Darwinian terms. And so it shows that balance of power is really paramount here. And this goes all the way back, a point I've been wanting to make. When you ask, why is it that our species became so different than chimpanzee society? We share 99% of our genes. How did we become so different? And it's because of social control, basically, and social control. In a chimp community, the strongest individuals and alliances, they get their way. It's a despotic society, but in a small-scale human society, if someone plays the bully, then everyone else collectively gangs up on them, and you just can't do that. And so, therefore, the only way to seek power in that kind of community is to cultivate a good reputation. And the only way you can do that is being good for the 
group. And so you get this, this kind of yin and yang of, on the one hand, nobody can push me around. You can't push me around. That's the worst thing to try. And on the other hand, uh, we do what we decide to do. And so there's a very strong individual element because individuals have to protect their interests from subversion from within. And there's also a very strong consensus view. So there's your group and your individual hmm. right there. And what needs to happen and what has happened over the course of human history is that that's been scaling up and up and up, those social control mechanisms. And now maybe, to return to your point, Elia, maybe this is, maybe we're seeing this starting to emerge for the first time at a global scale where just naked predatory acts, such as Russia invading the Ukraine, there can be a collective response that contains it. We don't know if that's going to happen, but you can see that it's kind of struggling to happen. And then if it doesn't happen this time around, it could happen even better in the future. Maybe in light of that, David, I want to ask, how do you think technology, computer technology and the internet is changing or affecting evolution and the evolution of the human species? Well, it's essential in order just to communicate. You can't have a, a global organism without a global brain and a global nervous system. And you know, it's so fascinating. If you go back early in life, you find electronic communication was invented long, long, long time ago. Even before multicellular organisms, you, it's, these are hmm. you know, recent discoveries that uh, bacterial and fungal hyphae and bacterial swarms communicate electrically with uh, each other. So there's no organism without communication, and there's no communication without basically electricity. And so uh, the internet, or what we call the internet age, is absolutely essential. But of course, once again, only when structured in the right way, and when structured in the wrong way, then it becomes part of the problem. So, so it all boils down to that. I've been concerned because I think technology has amplified or enhanced the speed of evolution. I think in some ways we are complexifying much more quickly, but we are unable to adapt, I think, in some ways to our new complexified life forms. And I find a resistance, you know, we're in this ambivalent state, I think, with technology. It both unites us and brings us to a new level of what Teilhard would call the newosphere. At the same time, we don't know how to live in the newosphere uh, exactly. We're still in some lower level of biological life. So I wondered, you know, how you might see engaging technology in this forward movement of evolution or toward pro-social unity. I mean, I could see on one hand, you know, we can, we're much more aware of global events. We're much more aware of belonging to a global community than ever before, I think, in the history of humanity. And at the same time, we still act as if we're tribal, you know, as if we're not global, as if we're just very local and very circumscribed by where we are. So, you know, the Ukraine is of interest in the news globally, mentally, but for all practical purposes, we live and act as if, you know, whatever's happening over at that part of the world is not part of our daily lives. So we're really not part, you know, we're part, but not part of what's taking place globally. Well, there's, there's a lot to say there, Ilya, and, and I'll pick out one point, and I've written quite a lot about this, the need to operate in two capacities. One is we need to design whole social systems at the global scale. And for that, we need the whole global good in mind. Then we function as participants in that system. 
in the system that was designed. And for that, we do not need to have the global good in mind. Let me give you an example. We'll shrink things down to the scale of a city. We've all heard about the smart city movement, basically, a movement to make cities smart. That means that most cities aren't smart. Most cities, actually, they're unregulated. All kinds of bad stuff happens in cities. And so how do we make cities more smart, more like a single organism? And one way to do this is the three-digit telephone number 311. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's a number that you call not for an emergency, that's 911, but to report any minor dysfunction, anything that's going wrong in your city, (laughs) you just dial 311 and you can report it and that goes to the services. And then of course that should be processed and this problem gets solved. And so you can begin to see how the city can develop a nervous system in this fashion. It's called the eyes and the ears of the of the city. And and so it's like everyone becomes a kind of a perceptual organ. So it's awesome. And here's the point. Obviously, to design 311, there's a lot of effort that has to go into 311, including reducing biases, because, you know, how do you, you know, people, not everyone uses stuff like that. Also, just to, just to spin it out a little bit more, turns out that when you study it, people are motivated to dial 311 only for problems in their immediate vicinity. When they're just out and about, they don't bother. But if it's in their neighborhood, they bother. And so there's a little bit of kind of groupishness and tribalism. In any case, a lot of system-wide effort is required to create something like 311 or more generally a smart city. But once it's created, residents of the city don't have to think of anything other than just that local problem, dialing it. That's all they have to do. Yeah. Interesting. Gabby, did you have any input here or question? Yeah. Do you think that the 311 does make people very reliant on somebody will be sent to fix this instead of reaching out and doing it themselves? Because I think those communities, Hmm. I remember we used to have these days where we would just go and clean up the river for a whole day. And that was all we did. Do you think that the idea of someone else will do it does arise there at all? It could. Um, mm. I think there's a danger of that, and that's a, that's a danger that you'd want to forestall. The fact that most people are so local, one of the studies that was done, by the way, was to, to promote the use of 311. And in this experiment, uh, it was uh, they had two flyers that they made up, and one appealed to the city of Boston, and the other appealed to the person's neighborhood. And the neighborhood appeal had an effect. The appeal to the whole city of Boston had no effect at all. You might as well not have even tried. And so knowing that, this goes back to your point, Gabby, it it reveals the need to organize people into small groups. That's the natural grouping. And then for those groups to operate as a kind of a cell in a larger multicellular society. Uh, So the cell is not the individual person. The cell is the small group. And because we live in many contexts that optimally individuals would be in many, I mean, everything important that they do could be done. And it's there that you would, I think, get the kind of initiative at the group level, Gabby, that you were talking about. So people would solve their own problems. Yeah. And if it was solved above, it would be in consultation with the whole, the whole group. So recreating the fabric of human society at that scale, that's another thing religions do well. And we could even borrow from the evangelical tradition, what's called a cell ministry, which was invented in Korea in a megachurch and is spread around the world hmm. as one of the newest forms where you have a megachurch and then you have people in addition to that 
they meet in small groups in each other's homes and, and so on. So, uh, and I think we should all be trying to do something like that. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear this uh, from you, David, because I've been thinking about this for quite some time, actually, and probably Gabby has as well. I mean, I do think the small group, I think of us as cells within cells within cells, like small groups within small groups, holes within holes within holes. So that I think even politically and, you know, I mean, I imagine even nation states reforming along the lines of kind what I might call holism. You know, if we could imagine political holism rather than kind of political hierarchies of some sort, that the small groups function best, most optimally, but in connection with other groups. So that if I could think of a group as an open system, that the group is not closed, bounded, you know, you're not us, but rather that we live here and are open to cooperating with you where you are. And so types of cooperative interrelated type of holistic or small cell living. I could envision that for the future. Well, that's also in the past. And so we have the, the Catholic concept of subsidiarity. And we have to note that although the Catholic Church doesn't, you know, well, I mean, the Catholic Church most recently has embraced the whole world with our common home. That was addressed to the whole, uh, to the whole world. But Yes, in 2015. Even as its own organization in the past, it had this sense that, uh, you know, if the smaller groups should have authority, to self-govern, and uh, unless problems are caused higher up the scale, then they should, they should do things their way. And that concludes part one of this two-part interview with Ilya, Gabby, and David Sloan Wilson. Make sure to come back to listen to part two of this interview, where we'll continue talking about power and authority, science and religion, and what the world looks like in light of evolution. This podcast is made possible through partnership with our friends at the Fetzer Institute. Your hosts today were Ilya Delio and Gabby Sloan with special guest, evolutionary biologist, Dr. David Sloan Wilson. My name is Jillian Langford, and I'm the producer of this podcast. Our social media and marketing manager is the fabulous Kate Christensen, and Robert Castro and Rebecca Mays have worked behind the scenes to help schedule these interviews with our incredible guests. If you'd like to support A Hunger for Wholeness, you can do so by becoming a patron on Patreon for as little as a few dollars a month. And we'll also, as a little treat to you, give you some behind-the-scenes access to interviews with our guests where you can ask questions to Ilya and Gabby as well. You can also keep up with all of the latest at Hunger for Wholeness by following us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram as Hunger for Wholeness. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back here again for part two of this interview with David Sloan Wilson.